an inexorable force in the cosmos where time and space converge. A place beyond man's vision, but not his reach. It is the most mysterious and awesome point in the universe. That was a clip from the trailer for the 1979 film, The Black Hole. More than a century ago, physicist Albert Einstein predicted the existence of black holes, points in space where gravity is so powerful, nothing, not even light, can escape its pull. Since then, black holes have become haunting fixtures in science fiction, in part because we know so little about them. But a lot has changed in the past decade. We understand more about black holes now than ever before, including what they sound like. That's the sound of a black hole released by NASA in May. Last week, a tweet from the agency of that audio got millions of views, sparking renewed interest in the subject. We're camping out on black holes and answering your questions about them. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember to join us for future conversations or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. Introducing Group Sessions, a new BetterHelp therapy offering currently in pilot testing. Therapist Joy Bergheimer shares how finding a community of people with shared experiences can help clients become more comfortable with therapy. For quite some time, we have not normalized mental wellness, and a lot of our families would shame you when you would say that you were feeling depressed or you're feeling overwhelmed. If you have been told over and over again that basically you have a character flaw, if you're seeking therapy, that's going to be a reason that people don't want to go seek therapy. But actually being in group with other people and hearing them say a story that feels like it came right out of your book is huge. Like, oh my gosh, this is not abnormal, right? And this person is further along in their journey than me. So now I know that therapy is something that can shift things for me. So really seeing their peers has been a huge shift for people accepting therapy for themselves. To get 10% off your first month of online therapy, go to BetterHelp.com slash 1A. Let's jump into the conversation by welcoming our first guest. She's the scientist who led the team that translated the black hole sound for human ears. Kimberly Arcand is the visualization scientist and emerging technology lead at NASA's Chandra X-ray Observatory. She's also the principal investigator of the NASA Sonification Project. Kim, it's great to have you. Hi, thanks so much for having me here. So to be clear, the sound we just heard is not, it's not the sound of an actual black hole that someone you know, held a microphone to. I- explain what we just heard. Correct. Yes. We're not, we're not holding up a microphone to space. This is something that's really far away. It's about 250 million light years away. And what it is essentially is we took data that had shown us that a black hole, a supermassive black hole at the center of a cluster of galaxies was sort of burping out into the hot gas around it. And those burps were these waves sort of propagating out, which essentially were pressure waves, which we were able to figure out were actually sound waves. And that sound wave was a really low, low sound, like so low, 57 octaves below what humans could really hear. Um, And so what we did is we took the data and then resonified it. So created something up in the pitch that humans can actually hear. When you say that these were sound waves, the black hole was, was sort of burping out. How did you figure out that's what it was? 
So the original researchers on this, um, Dr. Andy Fabian and his colleagues, they did this research back in 2003, and they essentially used a new image processing technique on the Chandra X Observatory data that they had captured and were able to showcase these beautiful sound waves, these pressure waves throughout this cluster of hot gas. And what that is, is that just showing us how this supermassive black hole is sort of disturbing the medium around it, which has sort of implications as to how that cluster of galaxies evolves and changes. What did you have to do to translate this sound for human ears? You said, again, the frequency is is too low. Yeah, this is one of the deepest sounds in the universe, which I think is quite lovely to think of these these bass divas singing out their songs <laughs> propagated throughout the universe. So in order for us to hear it, we're using a sort of bespoke process of um, coding to be able to extract the waves from that data and then translating it using some um, like sound-based software, sound engineering software, so that humans can hear it. So it's a process that we've been doing. My collaborators at System Sounds, um, Dr. Matt Russo and Andrew Santaquita, are two experts in this sound engineering possibility. And I've just been absolutely in love with the idea of taking an actual sound wave and creating something that we can hear out of it. And that's what we did. What was your reaction the first time you heard it? I just thought it was so cool. <laughs> it was really like I just had to get out of my seat. It, you know, I've worked on Chandra data for almost 25 years as a, as a scientist and having this new way of understanding, this new way of experiencing it, it really made it exciting all over for me again. Did it upset anything you believed about black holes? Because I think a lot of us think about space and, and think of it as being soundless, right? Because there's no there's no air there but we also think of black holes as being something that that pulls things in that doesn't release anything yeah i think black holes have a bad reputation of just being like these cosmic vacuum cleaners or something right but there's so much more than that there's just as much i don't know birth possibility as death possibility when it comes to a black hole we've learned that they are really responsible for the sort of care and feeding of a galaxy for example that's just some of the like awesome science that we've gotten out of chandra so i wouldn't say that the sound particularly upset what i knew about black holes by by any stretch of the imagination however it just makes me think of the data differently like i'm just a, i'm a data person and so I think when you're working on data for so long, you get used to it, perhaps, and being able to think about it in these new ways just opens up a whole universe of possibilities. Now, again, NASA originally released the sound of this black hole in May, but a tweet from the agency last week went viral, and it sparked new interest in black holes. That's why we're doing this show. What's your response to the excitement this audio has generated? I love it. I, I really love it. I think it's so exciting <laughs> to see people having these conversations about hot gas and black holes and sound. I don't know. It's kind of a dream come true. I mean, when we're working on these projects, we're actually really creating data sonifications with our blind and low vision colleagues in mind, um, whether they're experts or non-experts. And so to have a project that really meant to be inclusive just get such a high rank in popularity yeah, that was just a really special moment. It's It's been an absolute joy to witness. Although some people have been like scared of the sound and some people feel like it's too ominous, like it's a horror movie soundtrack. And I do feel bad for that. I don't think it sounds like a horror movie. I think it sounds like a beautiful space symphony, but... <laughs> <laughs> now, this is the sound of just one black hole. Scientists estimate there's a black hole in every galaxy in addition to numerous wandering black holes, which I will say is a, kind of a frightening vision for me, but could, could they all sound different, Kimberly? 
Yes, yes. So the idea is that it really depends on the size of the black hole, the sort of hunger of it, like how you know active it is, um, its age, its mass, and then also what the environment is around it. If it's in this kind of cluster of you know, hot gas around all of these other galaxies. There's a lot of potential for different kinds of sounds. So um, the the black hole at the center of like the M87 one, for example, which has been in headlines before from the fantastic images um, of a black hole from the Event Horizon Telescope, that would make a different sound. Um, it would have, it's a little bit more energetic, for example. So it's going to create different kinds of pressure waves in the environment around it. And I think that's really exciting that it could be some sort of unique signature uh, for black holes, just like our voices are different signatures for for humans. Well, your team released some new space sounds yesterday. Tell us about them. Yes, actually. Oh, thanks for asking. That's so nice. So yeah, we (laughs) actually just released some new sonifications um, of the James Webb Space Telescope early release objects, particularly, for example, the Carina um, Nebula. And it's a really, I think, beautiful expression of the data. I think there's this idea, and um, a colleague, Dr. Wanda Diaz, first brought it to my attention. She's an astronomer and computer scientist who's blind, and her PhD was essentially showing that humans can learn to become better listeners, and particularly, you know, in astronomy with astronomy data. And I think I've always loved that idea, that we can learn to become better listeners, that we can use sound as a way to understand our our data differently. And so for the, the James Webb objects, I think it was exciting to see everybody's response to those images, but we really wanted to make sure that everybody had sort of their own equal way of being able to explore that data. And so the sonifications are a true translation of that image-based data into sound, where it's really trying to encapsulate all of the sciency goodness in the data, but bring it into a method that can be heard. Hey, before I, I let you go, has this experience changed the way you think about space? It does, honestly. I I think there's a great sonification that was one of the, the strongest ones for me, and it's a deep field of black holes. There's just thousands of them so that you can listen to. And seeing it is one thing, but hearing the density of those black holes, it's a whole other feeling. It just just brings me to a whole new world. That's Kimberly Arcand, the visualization scientist and emerging technology lead at NASA's Chandra X-ray Observatory. She's also the principal investigator at NASA's Sonification Project. Kimberly, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks so much. Let's add two new voices to the conversation. Priyamvada Natarajan is the Joseph and Sophia Frutan Professor of Astronomy and Physics at Yale University. She's also a principal investigator at Harvard's Black Hole Initiative. Her book is Mapping the Heavens, the Radical Scientific ideas that reveal the cosmos. Professor Natarajan, it's great to have you back. Thank you, Jen. Sounds like you're becoming a black hole nerd now. I am. I have been since 1979 when Disney released that movie. Also with us is Jen Levin. She's a professor of physics and astronomy at Barnard College of Columbia University. She's also the author of the book Black Hole Survival Guide. Professor Levin, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Good to be here. So, Professor Natarajan, let's just start with with the basics. What is a black hole? Oh, well, there that's the big question. And I think you should ask Jana, too, because there are multiple conceptions of how we think about black holes. I think there are sort of three different ways. One is that black holes are really the end states of stars. So you have massive stars that live out their life and then can explode into a supernova and end up as a black hole. Another way to think about black holes as these regions in space where which are so 
replete with gravity, such strong gravity that not even light can escape, let alone matter. Nothing really escapes a black hole. So that's sort of one way, another way to think about a black hole. And yet a third way that I often like to think about them is to, you know, we often say that, you know, light doesn't escape. What does that really mean? So if you think of the launch of rockets from the Earth, they have to exceed a certain speed, which is why we sort of rocket them out and launch them from, say, Cape Canaveral or so. And that is the escape speed. So the escape speed from the surface, if you will, of a black hole is the speed of light. And that's sort of what we mean when we say not even light can escape. So yes, they are these sort of enigmatic objects in the universe that you can think of in sort of multiple different ways. And as astrophysicists, we often think of them as sort of these objects that are very dense in states of stars that completely distort space and time right around them. Professor Levin, I'd love to hear from you on this as well. Yeah, so I agree with Priya, uh, but there's a distinction to be made between how black holes are formed and what they actually are. Nominally, what a black hole is, I think a lot of us have begun to rely on the definition of what's called the event horizon, that region in space beyond which not even light can escape. And, and I often say black holes are therefore really a place and not a thing, because if you go up to this event horizon, there's nothing there but a shadow. And crossing the event horizon is kind of no more spectacular than stepping into the shadow of a tree. So they look dark on the sky when we can see them, and we've only seen two, <laughs> because they're casting this shadow where they don't let light pass through. Um, talking about a black hole as the death state of a star is just one way we know nature's thought of to, to make them, kill off some heavy stars. But it's possible that black holes are formed other ways. There are supermassive black holes we believe are formed in an entirely different manner. There might be microscopic black holes formed in the early universe in a totally different way. So we distinguish between how they're formed and what they actually are. What characteristics or qualities does a black hole need to, be, need to have in order to be considered a black hole, Professor Natarajan? Yeah, so we characterize black holes uh, normally by their mass and their spin. And the for astrophysical black holes, we understand the mass much better than we uh, understand the spin. Yeah, and I sort of agree with, uh, you know, Jana's conception that, you know, uh, we have only seen two black holes up close at the moment. But we have a lot of evidence for, you know, thousands of other supermassive black holes in the universe. So we're calling them black holes. But Professor Levin, are they really black and are they really holes? <laughs> well, it's, it's a great question. The term black hole was kind of foisted on us by the great relativist John Wheeler, who got exhausted in a, in a talk by saying the words catastrophic gravitational collapse. Um, and apparently someone from the audience, you know, the audience just shouted out, how about black hole? No. Um, and ever since then, he's been using it and we've all sort of followed suit. But they are uh, totally dark at the point of the event horizon. Um, they are the darkest phenomenon conceivable in the sense that they really do not let light out. And if you see some bright objects behind them, they will cast for us this incredibly, uh, completely dark shadow. Um, but are they holes? I mean, they really are just a place in space-time. Now, once you cross this region, so as Priya was saying, we, we understand black holes from their mass and their spin, and that also tells us how big this shadow is. 
shadows that they cast, um, the event horizon. And once you cross that shadow, let's say for a black hole 10 times the mass of the sun, that's a shadow that's only a mere 60 kilometers across, so they're tiny. Once you cross into that shadow, uh, you're still falling in space. But in the interior, is there literally a hole, a cut in space-time? I mean, that's highly controversial. And that's something that we still really struggle with to understand the mathematics and, and make a prediction for what's inside. I feel like my brain is just sort of being filled with helium right now. It's kind of wild. Let's go to this message we got from James in Maryland. Concerning the black holes, I don't know why they keep calling them black holes. They should call them black stars. It's just the evolution of a star. And and they, they do expel matter out of the top and bottom of them. We only see one side. If we saw the other side of the black hole, it would be identical to the top part of it. So they should be start being called black stars instead of black holes. Professor Natarajan, what do you think? Yeah, so I mean, I think this is um, exactly what Jana said, right? That when astrophysicists are talking about black holes, we are sort of much more obsessed with how they form. And, you know, they form uh, in multiple ways. In fact, fact, my research group has been working on this idea of direct collapse black holes. So you would bypass the formation of the star. But fair point, in fact, early on, um, you know, John Mitchell, who was um, a British polymath, uh, referred to what we now think of as black holes, this conceptually, as dark stars. But they are more than that because they can form in a multiplicity of ways. You know, I can't resist adding that, you know, the term black hole sadly has an Indian connection. <laughs> so really? it was originally the name of a prison in which in 1756, the Nawab of Bengal imprisoned some soldiers from the East India Company. And it was a point of no return. Sadly, a lot of them died that night in that very confined small space. So it was the point of no return. (laughs) Wow. Uh, Let's get to more of your questions. This is Dimitri. Hi, my name is Dimitri, and I'm calling from Valley Glen, California. My question is, do black holes actually absorb all information? My understanding is that recent research has shown that some information can escape a black hole. Is this correct? Professor Natarajan, what can you tell us? So uh, earlier, um, I think and Hawking was one of the people who pointed this out, that there was sort of an information paradox. Our understanding was that all the information that uh, ends up into a black hole cannot ever come out. So recent progress uh, that's been made by, you know, several colleagues of mine at the Black Hole Initiative and Cambridge and, and Hawking, um, till he passed away. So Andy Strominger, Netta Engelhardt, uh, Malcolm Perry have shown that it is possible to extract some information from a black hole. So in fact, you know, Hawking had this wonderful analogy. So suppose you have the Encyclopedia Britannica, you have a lot of information in it, and you put it in a closed box. Then you burn it down and nothing leaves that closed tight box. All the ashes are in there, right? So the information is in there. And I think what captures our sort of current level of understanding is that we no longer know how to extract the information that was in the encyclopedia back out because we don't understand how it's stored anymore or how it can be retrieved. But there's been a lot of progress recently. This is like an, uh, this is like a cool question about what I think are really the frontiers of black hole research. So when we talk about information escaping black holes, is, is that sound we heard earlier in the hour, is that an example of that or is that something different? 
That is something different because I think, um, and I think uh, Kimberly mentioned this briefly, we've always thought about black holes as um, these swallowers or vacuum cleaners, but they actually impact their environment. So some of the mass, as the mass is getting pulled in by gravity, intense gravity of the black hole, some small portion of the mass gets converted into energy that comes out in other wavelengths. So, you know, mass and energy, we all know E equals mc square are equivalent. So a percent or so, like a really tiny amount of the mass that is getting pulled in, starts to get converted into energy. And that's what we see glowing in the x-rays. So there's an imprint of the black holes. This is not information that has actually gone into the black hole, but the presence of the black hole and its gravity impacts the larger environment. And so this little energy that comes out in the x-rays, as she mentioned, because there is gas around, it actually comes out as pressure waves, right? So that energy is just transmitted out as waves. And that's what the sonification is showing us. So that is not quite information that has made it into the black hole that we are trying to recover. This is information that the presence of the black hole, just as we see black holes glowing in the x-ray. So it's that same gas that I said that, you know, a little bit of energy gets convert, uh, converted into x-rays, the mass that's flowing in. And that is what we see in the x-rays as x-ray emission. The sort of indirect uh, imaging of a black hole comes from other wavelengths. So that is slightly different from this information paradox that I think um, is being asked about. You're listening to the 1A podcast. And before we go to break, let's listen to this. Priya, your friend and composer Deirdre Gribben wrote Dark Matter Hunting. It's played here by the Pacifica Quartet, and it was inspired by your research. We'll be back with more from our guests and more questions from you in just a moment. Now let's get back to our conversation on black holes and the recent scientific progress that's been made to better understand them. We got this email from one of you who says, I'm trying to get a visual of what a black hole physically looks like. I've hoped for years a scientist would help me with this, but so far it's just becomes confusing. So is a black hole like a tiny, extremely powerful magnet, a physical object that attracts other physical and non-physical objects like light, would it then get larger? Okay, who wants to who wants to fill this one and, and try to give us a, a visual, Professor Levin? I can try this because I actually work on black hole magnets. Um, so you should really think again, thinking of a black hole as a place and not a thing. Uh, you won't see anything when you go up to a black hole. If a black hole is against a dark sky, you will see nothing, and you won't even know it's there. And you might even 
not realize you've crossed inside the event horizon and are technically inside the black hole and will never escape. It is literally like stepping into a shadow when there's nothing there to cast the shadow. So the only way we quote unquote see black holes is by shining a light behind them, maybe from uh, gas and material around it or from distant objects. And that light will, some of it will fall into a black hole and some of it will make it not out of the black hole, but will never fall in and make it around and create this casting of the shadow, create this uh, image against this bright background. And so that's what it looks like. Now, is it a magnet? It definitely can be a magnet. So black holes can um, charge up and become electromagnetically active. And it can also twist up magnetic fields around it. And so it will be kind of like its own magnet if it's spinning. And, um, and it will attract charged particles and it will get bigger. It will also gravitationally attract light and matter and thereby get bigger. Um, the black hole can only get bigger unless we consider this very subtle quantum phenomena Haw Hawking talked about where they, they quantum evaporate, but that's only at the very, 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 very final stages of their lives. All astro astrophysical black holes that we know of are absorbing material or doing nothing. They're completely quiescent. Well, that leads us to this question from Evan who asks, I understand now that a black hole is part of the life cycle of a dying star. What is the fate of a black hole or what occurs after the black hole completes its process. Professor Natarajan? Yeah, so the black hole is really sort of the end state of the star. So that is the starting point. And, you know, this leads up to the answer to the previous question. So black holes then eventually just grow in mass. And, and the way you know they're grow, growing in mass is the size of the event horizon, which is proportional to the mass, keeps growing and becoming larger and larger. So as more and more matter gets sucked into the black hole, it gets bigger and bigger. So the event horizon becomes larger and larger. So that's really how we talk about a black hole growing. And once you start with the what we call seed black hole, so the seed black hole, the infant baby black hole could be either the end state of a star, as I mentioned, they could be primordial black holes that were made very early on in the universe, or they could be black holes that just form from the direct collapse of gas, uh, bypassing the formation of the star. And these entities, these seed black holes, then keep growing as matter accretes to the center, and they end up in the centers of galaxies where matter flows in anyway, and um, they grow. And so when we talk about supermassive black holes, we basically believe they start out life either as stellar mass black holes or intermediate mass black holes or supermassive black hole precursors. So that's just a statement about the mass they start out with, whether they're a few times the mass of the sun, are they a thousand times the mass of the sun when they start their life out, or are they about you know 10,000 times the mass of the sun? So, so, so do, do we know if black holes dissipate or or are they sort of fixed states in in space once they form that jana mentioned called hawking, uh, hawking evaporation but that for any astrophysically interesting black hole that is you know a few times the mass of the sun 
few billion times, up to a few billion times, the kinds of black holes we know, that time scale is much, much longer than the anticipated age of the universe. So that process is not really relevant. So tiny, tiny, minuscule black holes that likely formed right after the Big Bang, they've probably already, a lot of them have probably evaporated. But the mass had to be super, super tiny, like 10 to the minus 30 grams or something. If they formed with that kind of mass, they would have evaporated by now. But any black hole that exists now is unlikely to disappear and evaporate because of just the time that it would take for that to happen. We got this email from Justin who says, black holes are portrayed as swirling vacuums, gobbling things up. Can planets and other bodies orbit black holes? And Che tweets, if black holes are everywhere, doesn't that mean that eventually the whole universe will be consumed in black holes? Uh, Professor Levin, I want to come to you first on Justin's question about whether planets and other bodies can, can orbit black holes. Oh, you can definitely orbit a black hole, and you can get much closer, much more safely than you can to the sun. So if you imagine the sun is a million and a half kilometers across, you, you can't get very close to the sun. And if you tried, it would be you know incendiary. It would not be a good idea. But black holes, let's say we were talking about one 10 times the mass of the sun that died was a star in its previous incarnation. Um, if it's only 60 kilometers across, that's so tiny. That's city-sized. You could be safely outside the black hole at a hundred and 60 kilometers, something like that, and or 180 kilometers and just orbit. Um, and, uh, and you wouldn't be burnt up because unless it's an extremely active black hole, and that means that it's, it's uh, engaging all the matter around it, maybe creating jets. And those jets are like X-ray guns and they're very powerful. So you don't want to be in the line of, a, of one of those. But you could, in principle, very safely orbit a black hole. And um, we do see in our own galaxy that there's a lot of stuff in orbit, lots of stuff, maybe even thousands of smaller black holes in orbit around a central supermassive black hole that's more than 4 million times the mass of the sun. And then to Chase's question, if black holes are everywhere, doesn't that mean that eventually the whole universe will be consumed in black holes? Professor Natarajan, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really uh, unlikely. They, I mean, uh, I'm saying that, you know, black holes are littered everywhere, but they really are not, you know, the, in terms of the matter content of the universe, they're not, I mean, they're a minuscule, minuscule uh, matter component of the universe. So I don't think they're going to ever sort of take over gravitationally. I mean, they, they are really impactful in their vicinities, but they still do not, you know, we have a very good idea of the cosmic inventory of the universe. And and dark matter, so talking about dark things that we don't know much about, here's another one. We believe the dominant component of matter in our universe, you know, the stuff that uh, is not in the periodic table, not the stuff that we are made of, but the universe is dominated by this component. That dominates much, much over all the ordinary atoms, so just like a 4%. And black holes are a tiny, tiny, tiny portion of that. So no fear of black holes actually taking over the entire universe just from the ubiquity. The fate of our universe, however, is, depends on the contents, the geometry, and the fate are intricately linked. We don't actually know how our universe is going to end. 
One possibility, so this is still speculation because we don't quite know, that is shaped by this other dark entity. Let me throw out another dark entity <laughs> called dark energy, uh, which we think is what is uh, powering the accelerating expansion of our universe that we measure today. So we believe that you know, and the nature of dark energy, again, is unknown. So you know, all these quantities, we don't know what they are, their nature, but we know what they do and how they manifest. So dark energy is going to determine the end state of our universe. And one possibility is you know, ending up in a giant, giant black hole, the entire universe ending up. But that's, as I said, it's you know, one possibility. It's speculation at the moment because we don't have empirical data that we're working on it. Well, you've both called this a golden age for black hole discoveries. Briefly, what developments in in black holes excite you the most right now? Professor Natarajan? Yeah, I think um, absolutely. This is an incredible time for discoveries about black holes. And I think it really has to do with the multiple wavelengths with which we are probing the cosmos and therefore revealing the properties of cosmic objects like galaxies as well as black holes. I think I'm really excited by two things. First is the James Webb Space Telescope that is sending down data, which you know has the um, the capacity, the sensitivity to reveal the first growing black holes in the universe, and also sort of provide a glimpse, therefore, of this question that we've uh, bandied about on how they actually form in the first place, how do they switch on, how do they turn on and start growing. So I think the James Webb Space Telescope data that will reveal to us quasars, which are basically feeding black holes, right at you know the very dawn of uh, the formation of the first stars and galaxies is super exciting and this is going to be you know gratified very soon data is really coming and i think the next mission and uh, sort of discovery that i'm really excited about and i hope i think it'll happen very soon and well, definitely in my lifetime is the collision of two supermassive black holes so you know we've seen the ligo collaboration detect the collision of stellar mass black holes what is different and exciting about supermassive black holes is there will be accompanying fireworks because as we saw, there's all this gas and stuff that's sitting around them. So it will not happen quietly in the dark night. There will be accompanying fireworks. We will see, you know, X-ray flashes, gamma ray flashes, lots of emission uh, from the surrounding material in the infrared. And NASA and ESA are collaborating on this mission called Project called LISA. And it's basically a LIGO-type setup and interferometer in space, and that will detect the gravitational waves, sort of these real sort of, you know, tumultuous earthquakes in space-time from these supermassive black holes. Pro- Professor I think Levin, that's the we, next exciting thing. We've just got about 30 seconds left here, but Professor Levin, what do you want people to walk away from this conversation, understanding about black holes and, and why they should care? Yeah, it, I, I speak in defense of black holes as Priya did, that they're often portrayed as these monsters of destruction, but they actually play a role both in sculpting our past and perhaps creating galaxies in which it's conceivable that life emerged. And we are in orbit around a supermassive black hole, our entire solar system together, as surely as we're as a planet in orbit around the sun. So they're, they're part of our celestial experience. That's Jana Levin. She's a professor of physics and astronomy at Barnard College of Columbia University. Her latest book is Black Hole Survival Guide. Also with us, 
Priyamvada Natarajan. She's the Joseph and Sophia Fruton Professor of Astronomy and Physics at Yale University. She's also the principal investigator at Harvard's Black Hole Initiative. Her book is Mapping the Heavens, the Radical Scientific Ideas that Reveal the Cosmos. Thanks for this conversation. It was a lot of fun. Today's producer was Haley Blassingame. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A.